Exodus 32, 1 through 5. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, he, what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And 1 John 5:21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Good morning. Last week, um, we began to look at how we might identify the things, the people, the ideas in our lives that function uh, as idols. Uh, an idol being defined as anything besides God that we look to for our, our ultimate sense of security, our sense of worth. Uh, we look to for joy, for meaning, for fulfillment, even deliverance or salvation. If that, if that thing is anything besides the Creator, if it's anything in creation or crafted from creation, person, place, thing, whatever, we've got an idolatry problem. Um, and we've acknowledged over and over that we all struggle with an idolatry problem. This is uh, why we need uh, the true God. These are the things in our lives that we functionally worship. I don't think we would put it that way. We might even deny that, maybe put our foot down and say, I don't worship anything but God. We affirm in theory, maybe, or in, in, you know, kind of sanctimoniously in a church setting uh, how much God is our true God and we worship Him alone. But an idol is anything that we, that we actually pursue, you know. Uh, not, not in here, not, in some, not as something we might say in theory. Uh, anything that we've got to have or else, right? We begin to show by our emotional reaction when we don't have it, when it's threatened, how much it means to us. Um, anything that we've got to have to be fulfilled or, or, or joyful. And only God is worthy of this kind of worship, this kind of devotion, this kind of pursuit. If we are, in fact, to keep ourselves from idols, as 1 John 5, 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, then we've got to know how to identify those idols. And so if you haven't heard last week's sermon, you might want to uh, go listen to that, on, you know, get it on iTunes or our website, uh, since today's uh, lesson is kind of a culmination of ideas from, from last week. Um, where, where, where do we look to identify the idols in our lives. And what we saw last week, just to recap very briefly, is that many of these idols are rooted deeply within our own hearts. Um, we may not even know they're there. And so if we take a closer look at some of these strong emotional responses that we display in various situations, various developments in our lives, um, maybe these are indicative of an idol in our heart. Um, things like irritability. Anger, uncontrollable passions, I've got to have this or else, and you become obsessive about that. These can often indicate 
an idolatrous attraction to something. Uh, I believe it was Kathy Keller who uh, works with Tim Keller on some of, uh, of his books said something to this effect, pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you will find your idols clinging to them. Pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots and what you'll find clinging to them are your idols. Other idols we might find more in just the air that we breathe. breathe. The culture, the society that we live in, things that we just uh, think are just normal. They're the, these are the water the fish swims in. It doesn't even know it's in water. It's just so around us, so everywhere, so ubiquitous that we don't even notice it. We, we can't imagine a world that's otherwise. But maybe the, this, this environment, this air that we're breathing, this water we're swimming in is conferring upon us certain idols that come from the culture around us. Maybe things like individualism, you know, hyper-individualism, which so defines the modern West. This idea that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with my money, with my time, with whatever, and no one has the right to tell me what to do. That's kind of the American way of life. Well, that's a feature of our culture that can become idolatrous. Materialism would be another one. Defining ourselves by our possessions or uh, inordinately focusing on stuff or money or that kind of thing. All right, but what, is, what we hinted at at the last part of, uh, of that sermon from last week, uh, an even more insidious idol, perhaps, uh, or set of idols, can, can come from the realm of religion. What about looking for idols in the faith that we hold dear. And I said last week I wanted to blow this point up because the sermon would have been, uh, a, 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 well, actually really long. No, I started to say a bit long, really long. Right before I got up, TJ whispered to me, can you make the sermon short? And I said, I said I'll try. And he can't, can you pinky promise? I'm like, I can't, can't do that. That's a whole, whole other level. But I get it. I'm, I'm with TJ. I, I want to. I really do. Um, so we broke it into two, and this is, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, so what, what do we mean by idols coming from the realm of our faith, from religion? And, and I do think they're more insidious, even more. Insidious meaning not just dangerous, but deceptively dangerous, right? Because it's not recognizable as much. Because it feels, these feel pious. We might describe them as just part of my, I'm being faithful. I, I'm being devoted and so because they, they feel so proper and so close to the real thing, uh, maybe they're even more dangerous. How is it that idols could be associated with something so virtuous as, as our faith, as our religiosity? And so to identify idols that can arise from the realm of our religious devotion, I want to suggest to you this morning three impulses, three very common impulses that are insidious because they may become, in fact, Idolatrous, And these are things we've got to resist if we want to identify these idols, identify and reject idols that would emanate even from the realm of our faith. First of all, we, we've got to resist the impulse, a very human uh, impulse, if history is any indication, to reduce God to a kind of manageable shape. I mean, God is described in the Bible as limitless, right? And yet humans have, even the humans who have sought to worship God or the gods in, in the case of, 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 of you know, much of world history, um, there is this impulse to reduce him down, um, to, to you know, sort of reduce him to a, a shape that is, is concrete and manageable and has limits that we can get our brains around or we can 
um, be convinced we're, we're pleasing or appeasing or whatever uh, the case may be. And so once more, we're going to look at the classic archetype of idolatry, and that's Exodus 32, where precisely when the children of Israel have been brought out by the Lord from Egyptian slavery to Mount Horeb to receive from God His communication to them, to receive the Torah, Scripture, right when Moses is in the mountain getting this, they are uh, chagrined by the delay of Moses. He won't come back. And so they decide to make, these, uh, to make this golden calf an idol. And we know from Egyptian idolatry that the calf was an, a common idol there. So these people have spent several centuries in Egypt. It's no wonder they picked up some of the culture of Egypt. What the, in, the interesting thing is, as we've noted before, and I want to make one more point about that today, and then we'll leave Exodus 32 for a few months probably, is that they make a golden calf, verse uh, 4 of Exodus 32 says, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but then they are dedicating this calf, this is connected in their minds at least, with having a feast to the Lord. And remember, L-O-R-D in caps in your English Bibles is the word Yahweh. This is the personal name of God when He's self-identified at the burning bush. So they have somehow concluded that they can worship the Lord, but in the shape of a calf. All right? Worship the true God in the concrete shape of a golden calf. And they see this as legitimate. Now, of course, God has a very different view of this episode, to say the least. And if we go over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, we can see some of the uh, recollecting of how awful this episode was and, and what precisely was wrong with it. So I want to read here from Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verses 15, verse 15 and going down through verse 18. Moses says, speaking on behalf of the Lord to the children of Israel, right before they go into uh, the promised land, he says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. And he reminds them of the events at Mount Horeb. He says, since you saw, notice this, no form. The King James Version, I believe, says no manner of similitude. All right. King James is too difficult for me. A lot of y'all are like, not really. It's a good version. But like, oh, the King James, that's real from it. Similitude versus form? Y'all are intellectuals, you King James folks. Um, anyway, that's a great word, similitude. What does that mean? Well, there's no manner of, 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 you can't say God is similar to anything. You can't limit him or define him in terms of something else. There's no form you can put him in that's accurate because he's formless. He's beyond any of that. And so notice this. He says, you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that is Mount Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. So beware, verse 16, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of anything. And he starts listing a lot of the possibilities that their neighboring pagan religious friends, or maybe not friends, enemies often, uh, it would turn out, uh, we're, we're doing regularly. And that is, you know, don't make God in the form of any figure, the likeness of a or a female, the likeness of any animal, the likeness of any winged bird, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish, and he goes on and on and on. Notice the word likeness. He's saying basically, don't try to give this limitless God, the I am that I am, being itself. Don't try to reduce him to some finite concrete shape. That's the problem here. It's basically the problem. They've broken the second commandment. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is don't have any other gods besides me. There's only one God, me, Yahweh. The second commandment isn't just a restatement of the first. It's not like there's nine with one A and one B, and I think we sometimes think that. The second one is don't have any graven images or carved images of me. That's a separate problem. It's related. 
The first one is having a different God. I don't even believe in Yahweh. I believe in God X. He's saying that's wrong. But then secondly, he says, believing in Yahweh and reducing him to the form of some shape that you make up is also wrong. It's a different error, though, because you are claiming to follow the true God. It's just you're not content to let him be this ineffable, infinite, eternal being that you can't reduce or control or manage. He is God. As Philip Yancey called him in one of his books, he is the wild and holy other. Deal with it. That's who God is. Yancey didn't say deal with it. That was my part. But we have to deal with that. That's who he is. Well, that's disconcerting at times. We'd rather have a God we can manage. But how ludicrous is it? How harmful is it to reduce the infinite one, the holy one, the one who is other, down to a size that we can manage? Isaiah 40, verse 18 says, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness shall you compare him to? The problem is trying to give God a shape, a manageable likeness, a form. Define him according to certain dimensions that you can understand better, maybe comprehend better, control maybe? Manage? That's wrong. Jeremiah 23 says, God says through Jeremiah, do I not fill heaven and earth? How are you going to give a shape to a being who literally is everywhere in the cosmos simultaneously all the time? It's ludicrous. And it's ultimately harmful to us to imagine that we can impose limits and boundaries that would define the Almighty One. To reduce Him down to dimensions that we find comprehensible. Now, my question is, oh, so, so about this slide here, we, we're now, you know, everything's going to iTunes, so you can now get the PowerPoint too. We've got a new program that does that. So it's weird when you're watching this somewhere else and you're, you're listening and all of a sudden it just goes blank. I used to use black slides here, so you're probably aware the slides would resume momentarily. But we're working on somewhere, a new clicker um, that will allow me to, this one won't blank things. But anyway, um, so my question is, how might we be guilty of coming up with our own golden calves, as it were? Now, probably no one here is going to suggest that we come up with a physical shape, a statue, right? Let's make a statue that, that represents God. Nobody here would do that. But could we be guilty of doing this in another way, maybe? Could we be guilty of a kind of mental idolatry? Trying to capture or reduce God down to some other set of dimensions. Maybe not a physical form of that, but some other form. Now, of course, one of the main ways we know God is through His Word, through Scripture, right? Scripture reveals to us who God is. It reveals to us who we are, uh, why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, what the story of the whole universe really is. And, and as far as we're concerned, the ultimate thing is how do we come into a saving relationship with God? The Bible is what, you know, the, the books of the Bible, the 66 documents that compose our Bibles, tell us those things. And so knowing the Word is extremely important. That's how we know who God is and who we are and all those sorts of things. Here's the problem. The Bible is a really big book. There is a lot of stuff in here. Have you ever had the experience of reading through? David talked about this a couple weeks ago, I think. And you, you've read over a certain section of, of, of the Bible over and over and over, and something has happened in your life recently. Maybe somebody else pointed out a new angle on it, or you've experienced something new. You're reading it through different lenses, and, and you could almost swear that 
that has never been in there before. And like, who put that? Who changed my Bible? There's a, there's, a, there's a new verse in there. It's not. You just haven't noticed it. it there's a lot in here. It's a dense book. It's a diverse book. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, there, what if somebody tried to reduce God's um, expectations of us, let's say? What do you require of us? Down to a few essentials. And say, so I know the Bible says all kinds of things, but let's reduce it down to, you know, uh, the gist. Let's get the essence of that. Let's put it in a shape that we, that's more, you know, communicable. And we can, we can tell people quickly or understand ourselves or tell our kids. And that's a, 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 a you know, a, no, a noble desire maybe. But what if God has said we're to do all these things in his word? And we decide because we want to net it out that we're going to come up with a list of those things. But that list is our list. We're giving God a shape that doesn't capture the full God, right? give you an illustration some of you won't know what I'm talking about here some of you will I've seen some of these published church directories before that list uh, sound churches or faithful churches so some human being has decided I mean this is kind of blows my mind a little bit a human being has decided and probably not even visited there's no way they have visited all those churches all over the world that are sound or faithful so that when you travel you can know where to go and be right with God. Now, what they're doing when they do that is they, they're using some sort of criteria, but those criteria are a very narrow and limited set of litmus tests to determine soundness, to determine faithfulness on the part of those churches. Maybe it's how that church, how different churches use their treasury money, or maybe it's what versions of the Bible these churches use. I've seen these, they have little symbols, you know, or, or what kind of songs they sing, or, or whatever it is, and that may indeed confer this sort of comforting sense to us that we can manage our piety when we're, you know, on vacation or when we're traveling for work. But do we really have the right to decide for God which of the many requirements of His Word are the markers of faithfulness and which are not? Do I have the right to sort of define for God what the gist is? And we've been doing that for a long time. There's the five this, the three that, the seven this, the whatever, right? That's a kind of golden calf. We're giving a shape to a God who's a lot more things than that. We need to be careful with our impulse to manage God. Secondly, the impulse to believe that we have a monopoly on God's truth. The impulse to believe that we have a monopoly on God's truth. I'm talking here about the idea that what makes a biblical interpretation, a reading of a certain Bible issue or question or passage, true or false, is whether the right people group holds that interpretation. That's really your criterion. It's not, is it square with the word or not? It's, do the right people say that? And if the right people say it, then it's right. If the wrong people say it, then it's probably not real relevant to me or maybe even wrong. I'm not even going to consider it because the right people group hasn't said it. And what that assumes is one group of people has a monopoly on reading the Bible correctly. So let me give you a scenario. Someone from a different kind of church than, than what you're used to, a different faith tradition, however you want to put that, 
you know, in a conversation or something, or maybe you read this or see it online or see it on in front of a church building as you're driving by on their little uh, marquee or something. At, at any rate, at some, in some way, you, you're exposed to a different kind of, uh, of take on the Bible. It's somebody from a different faith tradition. They present a view of, of, a, of a Bible issue or question or Christianity that is new to you. And frankly, it's a little odd to you. It's, it sounds, it's unfamiliar, it sounds suspicious. So, instead of considering it fairly in the light of Scripture, what you do is reject it out of hand for the sole reason that it came from those people or that church or that kind of person. It didn't come from the, quote, right people. Well, we need to understand that if we operate that way, if that's our M.O., we don't put ourselves in the best company, biblically. Because the chief priests and the Pharisees pretty much operated that way. And they don't come across, you know, swimmingly in the narratives of the four Gospels. So let me give you this, this example. This is John 7. And I've got some excerpts here. It's too long to read all of this now. But in John 7, many of the people are beginning to, many of the Jewish people are beginning to believe that Jesus is who he claims. That is the Messiah, the King of Israel. And he's bringing the kingdom of God and all those kinds of things. Many of the people believed in him, John 7, 31 says. And they said, when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, what are we looking for? This guy's done so many miracles. When the Christ, is he going to do more than this? Like, isn't that proof enough? Well, look what it says in verse 32 of John 7. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus. In other words, they're kind of attracted to him. They're kind of convinced. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. We better put this guy out of commission. Go, go arrest him. Well, they go, and they come back empty-handed. And then the officers, it says in verse 45, come to the chief priests and Pharisees who say to them, where is he? Why did you not bring him? Here's the problem. They'd heard him preaching. And what he said, these were the words of life. They answered to the officers, no one ever spoke like this man. I want you to notice the Pharisees' response to this. Again, the Pharisees reject Jesus. They reject his claims. These nondescript officers who were sent merely to do their duty, I don't know if they get converted, but they don't come back with him because they're attracted. They're enamored with the truth of the teaching. So here's the Pharisees' response in John 7, 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd or multitude, your version may say, that does not know the law, that doesn't know the Bible, is accursed. I want you to notice the basis of their rejection of Jesus. Okay, so the, the proposition that is to be either affirmed or rejected is Jesus is actually the Christ. Pharisees don't believe it. They've rejected that, so they send the officers to capture this imposter. Problem is the officers are convinced he's not an imposter, or at least not convinced enough that he is to do their duty. They come back empty-handed and say, we never heard a person talk like this. This is awesome. The Pharisees double down on their rejection of the claim that Jesus is the Christ. Notice the basis of their claim. 
Does this how you reason when you're talking about the Bible? Have any of the right people? That's really what they're saying. There's no exegesis of the law. They're not talking about the scriptures or the claim. It's just none of the authorities, none of the Jewish religious leaders has bought this claim. None of the Pharisees, that's them, right? Nobody in the in-group says this. So it must be false. In fact, the only people saying it are people in the out-group, the crowd. Well, we know from the Gospel of John who was right and who was wrong here, don't we? The out-group was right, and the people who should have known better, the religious authorities and Pharisees, were wrong. In fact, right after that, we read this in, in John 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus? He appears early on in the Gospel of John as a kind of skeptic. Here he sounds a little more on the fence, like he's moving toward some being convinced a bit. And by the end of the Gospel, he appears to have become convinced. Nicodemus is kind of a, a personification of a person who is studying and weighing Jesus fairly. And by the end, moves from doubt to what looks like some conviction. And here we find him saying to these Pharisees, Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law, do our scriptures judge a man without giving him a hearing and learning in what he does? Do you know that the Proverbs talk about it is a mark of a wise man to not give an answer before you've heard all the data, to fairly consider things before you respond, and that it's a mark of a fool to have a knee-jerk response? We're dealing with the Word of God, folks. It's a little bigger than what any tribe thinks about it. Our tribe or somebody else's. Whoever your tribe is in your mind. Let's be careful that we don't conclude that this view is right because it's our view. I'll give you one other one. I thought about skipping this, but can't resist it. Jeremiah 7. And so I, I appreciate the, the reluctance to just jump right into some new take on the Bible. I, I think it's a healthy thing to, to be more measured than that, more cautious. And we've got to be very careful with the issue of what's true and what's not true, but the Bible is the measure. And if our connection with God, our being in the presence of God is based on falsehood, then how can we be sure that, that it's intact, that we actually are in His presence, that we actually have a relationship with Him? So I, I get the... The caution. But let me suggest something from Jeremiah 7 now. And that is that dwelling in Yahweh's presence, dwelling in the Lord's presence, being one of His people, being in relationship with Him, isn't simply a matter of being in the right people group. In other words, this isn't the appropriate logic. Well, um, we're right because we're us. That view is right because it's ours. That view is wrong because it's not ours. That's, that's the wrong logic. I think you see some of this in Jeremiah 7, where God has already for the first six chapters sent the prophet Jeremiah to Israel and said, basically, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. You're, you're so given to idolatry. You're so not following the teachings of the Torah with regard to justice and mercy and love and righteousness. You're dishonest. Uh, you, you just, you, you're just basically... You, I've given you the land of Canaan, and you have defiled it, he says in one of the early chapters. That's the very language that was used of the pagans who were there first that God drove out 
so he could bring in his own people because the pagans had defiled. Now he says, now you've defiled the land. Well, they're, they're, they're apparently getting some pushback from some teachers that are saying, don't worry about all this business that Jeremiah is saying. That's radical. We can't be, we can't be judged because we have the temple. We have our identities, you know, we are Yahweh's people. We have his house, the temple of God. Everything's cool. That's the context. Jeremiah 7, now, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. In other words, be in my presence, be in my house. Do not trust in these deceptive words, verse 4. Here's the deceptive words. Somebody was saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Or as some versions say, they render it, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. In other words, we're safe because we're who we are. We're right because we're us. We're the right tribe, we got the right house, and God says it's never been about that. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods, idols, to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to you of old and to your fathers forever. If it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, you follow me? It's not okay just because you're you. Who, who can't say that? I mean, everybody can say it. Well, I'm in a tribe. That's the most visceral, unregenerate, pre-Jesus contact with Jesus mentality we could possibly have. I'm right because I'm me. My group's right because we're us. That's a form of idolatry. And it's as old as the hills. It's not even original. Right? Um, you are God's people, the prophet says, if you follow God. And God's word is the measure. And similarly, folks, we have God's truth if our view of it squares with his word. Our take on the Bible isn't right just because it's our take. All right. One last thing I want to talk about here. I really, we know better than to think this way, right? I mean, once we say it out loud, surely we know better than this. So where does this reluctance to consider other viewpoints come from? Why does it feel so right to always fall back to the views of our own group? Let me suggest to you that it feels right because it's familiar. And it's no more glorious than that. If you're going to say, well, it's in the Bible, that's a whole different point. That is my point. That's what it ought to be. But is it? If you won't even look at it, how do you know? And if you're resisting looking at it, why is that? Because it's not familiar. Are we making an idol of our sense of familiarity? So going back to our first point, why is the temptation to manage God so strong? Why do we want to manage God? Why do we want to feel like we're never going to have to go into any unfamiliar territory? Where do both of those come from? Let me suggest to you that both of those stem from a third impulse which underlies them both and animates them both, gives life to both of those, makes them feel logical and safe. 
And that third impulse is that we make an idol of our sense of certainty. We make an idol of our sense of certainty. Whether we're trying to manage God or monopolize God's truth, what often lies behind both of those is this longing for certainty. And a, a kind of certainty which is fixated on a certain thing. We'll talk about it in a second. So because we like the feeling of certainty, I think it's human to do so. Who wants to just feel uncertain and flying around in the wind? Nobody. We love the feeling of certainty. We long for that. We love the comfort of things never changing. And so we begin to define God in terms of traditional doctrinal systems or our list of worship acts or whatever else it is. I read a book by a guy named Greg Boyd who talks about this problem at length and calls out Bible case after Bible case. And the book is called Benefit of the Doubt. Clever little title. It's really about the idol of certainty. He writes this, Some religious people have tried to find their ultimate worth and security in special rituals they believe will win God's approval, or at least appease God's wrath. Some have tried to feel loved, esteemed, and assured by God by believing that their righteous behaviors have secured God's favor. And others have tried to feel these things by trusting that their tribe or religion was superior to others because their distinctive beliefs and practices were the ones that God revealed or at least that God favored the most. I don't know if that rings true with anybody. He says these are all forms of idolatry. Whoa, what? And here's the sense in which he means it. For people are trying to feel accepted, worthwhile, and secure before God through things ultimately that they do for God or believe about God rather than receiving from God the life that God wants to share with them. And he's not saying in here you shouldn't try to get it right or do the right rituals or believe the right things. He talks about that disclaimers all over every page. But if you think that ultimately your standing with God has to do with something you did or thought or believed or affirmed or rejected or did in church, ultimately... That flies in the face of hosts of Bible passages, which are dedicated to try to explode this idea that this doesn't start with God. One such case was the time when Jesus ran into these religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders in John 5, who loved the Word of God. They knew a lot about you know, what we would call the Old Testament, the scriptures of their day. And Jesus says this to him because they reject him as well. He says, you search the scriptures. I mean, notice the irony of this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may actually have life. So they love the Bible. And they could probably list off, here are the key doctrines. Here's the five things or the 18 things or the seven things you got to do or got to believe or got to reject. And they, they're all about doctrinal accuracy and emphasis, right? They're not loosey-goosey people who don't care. Ah, it's all, it's all fine. No, these are old school conservatives. And yet they, they've got the Bible without Jesus because they've, they've not understood that the whole Bible is about Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
and about this passage and about theological certainty, which can turn into an idol if we have it focused on the wrong thing, um, Boyd says further this in this book. Jesus was trying to get them, that is the religious leaders of John 5, to see that there is no life in knowing the Bible and embracing Bible-based beliefs unless they lead to Jesus. The Bible's just a book, if that's the case. Yet, by trying to wring life out of things that have no life apart from Christ, these leaders made an idol out of the Bible and their Bible-based beliefs. This episode demonstrates that the way we believe what we believe can transform what we believe into an idol that actually blocks us from getting life from Christ. Even when what we believe is completely true. And this happens whenever we're confident we're okay with God because of what we believe rather than because of our relationship with Jesus. If what makes us feel okay with God is our confidence in the correctness of our beliefs, if that's ultimately what it's about for you, then your confidence in your beliefs is, in effect, your functional God. That's where your trust is. Do you see the difference? It's a subtle difference. I understand that. He goes to great lengths to disclaim people saying things like, uh, uh, you know, you don't care about the accuracy. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying it's very possible, and the Pharisees and the chief priests show this over and over again on almost every page of the four Gospels, that you can have a robust biblicism and not have Jesus. Your real confidence cannot be in the God to whom the Scriptures point, but it's in your doctrinal systems of feeling certain about everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I get, I get that it's a subtle point. But you know what? There's nothing more subtle than idolatry. That's the whole point. It's something that is close. The, most things, the things most likely to be idols are the, things that, the best things God made. And this is one. Do you think Satan just gives up when we, care, when we say we, like, we love God? No. He's got a whole set for religious conservatives who are trying to follow the scriptures. So, what about this sense of certainty that we love so much? Now, I mean, let me say this. It's not wrong for us to desire certainty. I think that's wired in us, wired into us. We, we want to stand on solid ground, not, you know, quicksand. Here's the problem. We're wrong to, to, to seek this sense of certainty by insisting that the past shape our faith has taken must ever be the faith itself. Do you see the difference? Because you've thought a thing about faith for however many X number of years, if you just assume, therefore, that's always got to be the way my faith looks, because that's the shape I'm used to, how is that not a golden calf incident? The Israelites were very used to golden calves and graven images of all sorts. So they said, Yahweh must look like this. And the scriptures call them to a view of God which is much more soaring and infinite and powerful and wonderful and awe-inspiring than all of that. And we've got to recognize that this Bible which points us to God is pointing us to God. A being who wants to have a relationship with us. Not have us reduce him down to this doctrinal system or this non-creed creed or whatever. And I think sometimes we want the sense of certainty. Israel wanted that too. The thing that is unchanging, you know, your views about what the Bible teaches on this, that, or the other may change. If they've never been cha changed and you've been a Christian for 20, 25, 30 years, 
I don't personally get that. I, I, I can't study for a year without changing my view on some things. I wonder sometimes if we're studying or if we're so afraid. It's really fear-driven. Slightest tweak, maybe we lost our salvation. Where, where do you think your salvation lies? Where is the sense of certainty supposed to be rooted? On what is it supposed to be grounded? Where is the unchanging rock? Your sense of certainty? It's not what the Bible says. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the unchanging one. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And another thing that will never change is His finished work for you and for me on the cross of Calvary, which displayed forever His unwavering love for us. Read with me from Romans chapter 8, one of the most comforting passages in all the Bible, to me, personally. What then shall we say to these things, Romans 8, 31? If God is for us, He says to Christians, who can be against us? How I mean, sorry, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, he's been condemned in our place and is now alive again regularly, daily, 24-7, interceding for you and me. And then he concludes down in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing in all creation, he says. Right? That's a quote from Romans 8. Can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need certainty, but let me tell you where it lies. It lies in what Jesus did at Calvary, not in our doctrinal systems, not in your ability to feel like you don't ever have to change your mind. Unless you start wondering if the cross is true, then we got issues. Let's talk. This is why Bible writers can say, say things like, I brought nothing to you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's not saying don't care about the rest of it. Don't try to get it right. He's just saying, your ultimate standing with God, it has to do with this. And I'll remind you, he says, nothing else in all creation can separate us. It's like the doubts and uncertainty of fearful flyers. Anybody here a fearful flyer? I used to be a fearful flyer. Now I'm not anymore because I flew some. You know, I, I imagined all these things that it wasn't. Every noise, like, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that? Your anxiety about flying or, or, or your ignorance about, uh, you know, some of the technical aspects of plane travel, the physics involved, you know, how, how to pilot a plane, all those kinds of things, the technical stuff that's involved, that has absolutely nothing to do with the plane arriving safely. And I think sometimes when we're fearful flyers, we think if I don't worry enough, the thing's going to follow the sky. Like, my, my anxiety is holding it up. It's not the Bernoulli principle. It's my anxiety. If I relax, whoosh, oh, I'm scared again, whoosh, you know. But you realize that whether you believe in the plane's ability to, to get there safely or not, it's going to get there safely because it really doesn't have anything. It's nice if you could believe it, then you've got a more joyful existence. 
it's, it's staying up in the air because of the principles of avionics and aviation, not your ability to believe those. And I think sometimes we, are, we really do make an idol of our certainty. That's really what we're trusting in. You're feeling what God did for you. Even if you're having a bad day or month or year and you're not really trusting it, though you be faithless, he says, what? I remain faithful. Even if your heart condemns you, God is bigger than your heart. These are Bible verses I'm quoting. He knows how we are. Trust Christ and the cross. Then go try to get it right. Don't trust your systems, your golden calves, whatever they be. That's a different thing. And I think this is why when Jesus is asked sometimes, hey, you know, we're confused. The disciples, I don't understand this or that. He doesn't usually answer their confusion with a bunch of theological explanation. He just points them back to him. John 14, if I go to a place for you, I'll come again. I'll take you to myself. John 14, 3, where I'm going, you will go also. You know the way where I'm going, Jesus says. Thomas goes, hold up. We don't know where you're going, Jesus. How can we know the way? So the question, the confusion is, how, how, I don't even understand what you're talking about right now, our ultimate destiny. So how can I know the way there? Jesus doesn't explain it all. He just says, I'm that way. Focus on me. In John 6, after the bread, of, the, the bread and uh, fish you know, were multiplied for the multitudes, and the, the people follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, and he teaches them in John 6 in that long sermon, and he says some crazy things in there. At least the people then thought they were crazy, and we probably would too if we were in that audience. In fact, it's almost exactly what Jace said that W.J. was talking about earlier. Jesus says, hey, you've you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Don't act like you'd be like, oh, duh. That's weird. It sounds like cannibalism. And it says on those words, not just the multitudes, but many of his disciples went away. Remember that? And Jesus says, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him in John 6, 66. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This is really confusing. It's the confusion, the lack of certainty is driving people away. Are you going to do that too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter said, basically, we don't have to be certain about everything to be certain of one thing. And that is that you came down here to get us. You are the Holy One sent from God, and you know how to speak the language of eternal life. And so we're just clinging to you. We're along for the ride. Let it be a roller coaster. We're going to ride it with you. There's going to be ups and downs. We have to change our minds sometimes. We're going to try forever to get it right because we love you. But we're not going to be in, out, in, out just because we change our mind on a doctrine here or a doctrine there. The doctrine is what God did for us on the cross in Christ. And I think sometimes because of reasons we'll talk about maybe in our history of Christianity class that come from our culture, we've really made something else the ground of our sense of confidence. And when we do that, we're verging on a form of idolatry. So I know that could be confusing. There's some subtleties there. Uh, but that's how idols work. Um, the spouse that you're sitting by right now that you love more than anything in the world and would fear the loss of more than anything in the world or your children, those can be your idols. Romance, sexuality, 
security, job, food, enjoyment. All those are the best, most likely idol candidates because they're things God made that, that are good. So it shouldn't be surprising that when it comes to the realm of like trying to get it right doctrinally or something, that there's going to be some idols in there too that Satan's going to use on us. So let's think about those things. Thank you for your attention today. Um, we will now stand and sing the song, Be Unto Your Name. Let's stand and sing. If we can help you, come to this inner circle and let us know how we can do so.